Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Giovanni Landoni, MD, about the article, Mortality in Multicenter Critical Care Trials, an Analysis of Interventions with Significant Effect. This was published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Landoni works as an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at IRCCS San Rafael Scientific Institute in Milan, Italy. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Landoni. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Interesting article in critical care medicine pertaining to mortality outcomes and what interventions have both increased and decreased mortality in the ICU over the years. Perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about the background and what got you interested in this particular topic. Yeah, in my background, uh, I'm an anesthesiology and intensive care specialist. Here in Italy, we do both specialties uh, together. I work mostly in uh, the cardiac surgery field, but I'm uh, head of research of the anesthesiological intensive care uh, activities of of the hospital. And so we also do a lot of research in uh, intensive care and of all the preparative settings. And my hospital is a large research uh, center in uh, North Italy with a lot of scientific output. That's it. Yeah, I read from your um, background that you have a strong interest in mathematics, and that has led to uh, helping you with your scientific methods. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I wanted to do physics instead of mathematics, then I end up doing anesthesiology because of, I think there is a lot of hidden mathematics in our job. I mean, the simple one is uh, words, I mean, words in the past, at least, to prepare the parenteral nutrition and doing all the calculations, but I think that most of the mathematics in our job is all the hidden mathematics that guide our giving all the drugs at the reduced dosage, imagine all the pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamics, half-life, elimination, I think is definitely a lot of mathematics in our job. Yeah, certainly, certainly. How did you decide to look at mortality in, in these uh, multi-center trials and kind of group them all together? Yeah, I think many colleagues uh, will agree with me that mortality is uh, the most important endpoint in almost every setting. One can argue that quality of life might be even better, but let's say that uh, mortality is the most objectivable endpoint. And many of the things that we daily do in our uh, routine clinical practice aim to improve short-term physiological uh, variables and only few drug techniques and strategies have a documented uh, effect on the long-term mortality. So the aim was just to address this topic and uh, identify all the multi-center randomized trials that had a documented statistically significant effect on, uh, on survival. And I imagine that there were many, many trials, and I was wondering how you went about truly identifying them and making sure that you found all the appropriate trials. Yeah, that was a terrible job (laughs) with a lot of colleagues here in our center helping, and 
uh, we started from uh, several thousands of trials, and at the beginning we selected a few hundreds of them, just removing all the trials that were not randomized, that were not multicentered, that did not deal with uh, critically ill patients. But I think you got the point. That was the most difficult part of the job was to first do the systematic review of the literature and identify all the multicenter randomized clinical trials. We might have lost few of them, but just few, 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 few. I think that the, 20, the 24 trials that we identified, definitely all of them or, at least, or most of them of those ever published in the, the, the in international uh, in international literature. And so with all those trials, only 24 of them demonstrated any particular effect on mortality outcomes. Is that correct? Yes, let's say that 24 are uh, free of bias and uh, have agreement among the colleagues worldwide to support the effect because the second big part of the project was to involve more than 500 colleagues from 61 countries and ask them to agree or not with the suggested drugs, techniques, and strategies. So an important systematic review, and then plenty of colleagues from worldwide, US, Australia, and Italy were the countries that participated more, and they had to confirm of challenge if these articles really had a reduction in, uh, in mortality that was uh, reliable and the, that could be repeated, that was plausible, and that had uh, strong statistics supporting it without tricks. <laughs> without tricks. It's a good point. Without mathematical tricks. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I was wondering how you decided to choose this group of, of colleagues for the survey, and also why survey 500 colleagues to get their opinions regarding these outcomes? Oh, yes, nice question. And uh, so first of all, I contacted, let's say, all the corresponding authors of uh, articles in the field of uh, anesthesia and uh, intensive care. This is a job that I did in the past to collect uh, all these addresses. So at the same time, I invited them to invite colleagues. So let's say that this is a pool of uh, worldwide colleagues. Uh, it is a little bit selected uh, because they are high-quality colleagues. Most of them have uh, published in the field and at least they had the interest to spend some time in uh, answering these uh, important questions. So this is how I selected these 500 plus colleagues. And uh, why did they feel uh, the need to contact them? Because uh, let's say that most of the knowledge that uh, reaches the practitioner comes from opinion leaders. Opinion leaders are fantastic people but they might have a conflict of interest or they might have a bias according to what they published or to what they are publishing. So this is a kind of, uh, we called it uh, democracy-based medicine, so it's a kind of uh, 
survey without a strict rule, just being a colleague, uh, having interest in the topic, uh, having the time to express your beliefs and your uh, behavior in uh, daily clinical practice. And as you went through the data, what perhaps was the most surprising result that you identified? Was there anything that surprised you in particular that you weren't expecting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from my point of view, the most surprising finding is that in the history of medicine, of critical care, non-invasive ventilation is the, let's say, drug technique or strategy with the best evidence in support of a mortality reduction in, uh, in the critically ill patient. This was impressive because we found eight multicenter randomized trials showing a mortality reduction with non-invasive ventilation in these patients, while most of the other topics had only one manuscript to support their effect on survival. So I found it really, really impressive. Yeah. So eight of the 24 trials that had an impact on mortality outcomes were testing non-invasive ventilation. Is that right? Eight. Yes. Eight out of 24 tested non-invasive ventilation and documented the mortality reduction. Yeah. yeah. That is surprising. And I guess I'm looking through Table 1, uh, which identifies the trials that had uh, a significant reduction in mortality and it looks to me as though non-invasive ventilation was used primarily for patients with uh, COPD and COPD exacerbations. Uh, yeah, and a couple right. with, a, and then two trials, I guess, with acute respiratory failure, which could be multifactorial, I suppose. Is that correct? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Most of the evidence comes from uh, COPD settings, but there are other. Now I, I've already got a fifth. Been further single center trials, this is not yet published, with the non invasive ventilation reducing mortality in uh, several other uh, contexts. So, yeah, I agree with you. In, with multi center experience, most of the evidence comes from uh, COPD patients, but this technique is really fantastic. And uh, we are definitely studying it in several other uh, settings here, even outside the ICU setting. If you do education uh, and training uh, and you have some kind of uh, medical emergency team uh, supporting the world staff, you can have a fantastic result even outside the ICU. Yeah. As I was looking through this, I was wondering if perhaps non-invasive ventilation was one of the one of the modalities that perhaps is fairly underutilized in ICU care. Uh, I don't know if that's your impression or if you got that type of impression perhaps from the survey data. It seems, at least in my observation, that perhaps we underutilize it and this might be a drive to utilize non-invasive ventilation more frequently. I think that that depends on the center. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, in our survey, it was uh, the most popular and the most frequently used. So I think around the world, on average, uh, we are using it again and again. And that happens in my experience uh, as well. In my hospital, the the nurse can put the, can start the non-invasive ventilation in the ICU without even asking to the medical doctor because it, it has become routine and the first line, uh, not only treatment, but also prevention. Interesting. That's great. That's a great advance having the nurses have been able to initiate that the, themselves. That 
That sounds like a good yeah, of idea. Course the, of course, the senior, of course, the, the, experienced, uh, the experienced one. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that the, the results are, uh, are, really, are really nice, impressive. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps you can take us through the other treatments that did have a positive effect or reduction in mortality that you identified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say the second best, at least for the number of trials included, is protective uh, ventilation. So there are three multicenter randomized trials suggesting, or let's say confirming, that protective ventilation in uh, severe ARDS is life-saving. What is interesting is that all these trials were uh, interrupted at the interim uh, analysis because of the survival uh, benefit. But since there are three of them, uh, I mean, I think we all agree that it is uh, part of uh, the routine uh, clinical practice that save lives. Even if most colleagues agree with uh, with its life saving efforts, uh, there are not so many. I mean, it's not uh, it's not used 100%. It's approximately used in 80% of cases in uh, in daily clinical practice. This was quite surprising, and uh, on the other side, it was not surprising to see that uh, prone uh, position that has now been uh, demonstrated to save lives in uh, in severe ARDS patients. I mean, everybody agrees that uh, it is potentially life-saving, but just uh, a little bit more than 50% of colleagues uh, is uh, applying it in the routine uh, clinical practice, probably because it's time-consuming and resource-consuming and uh, requires expertise, or maybe it has the competition of uh, ECMO in in the big center. It also seemed, you know, there were, there were multiple negative trials of prone positioning until this trial finally was published. So I wonder if that biases the clinicians as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the past, uh, most of the most of the old uh, trials on prone positioning were uh, appealing, but not powered enough, or maybe not performed in a patient at so high risk to show a mortality a mortality benefit. So yeah, it, it is a story that has been going on for long, and now that now that we know that it really works, uh, there is the the ECMO as competitor that is more uh, exciting for uh, for physicians. Yes, this is what uh, what I think at least. Yes, absolutely. And I was wondering about in terms of the protective ventilation trials, were the protective uh, I, I haven't reviewed those in a while. Were the protective ventilation strategies uh, similar from trial to trial, or, or did they differ a bit? All of them had the same characteristic of uh, low tidal volume. So in this paper, when we say protective ventilation, we say low volume ventilation in severe ARDS. For uh, the other part of the protective ventilation, there is not such a strong evidence. I mean, we're all using uh, high PEEP if uh, not contraindicated, but for that part of the protective ventilation, there is not so much evidence so far, but uh, I think we are, uh, nonetheless, we are uh, using it uh, daily. And what were uh, some of the others? I guess we've we've gotten three of them so far. Some of the other findings that did decrease mortality. Yes. So we found a daily interruption of uh, sedatives. 
even if there is debate maybe on that uh, specific trial, I think in the last year, sedation in the ICU is definitely larger than in the past. I mean, the patients are not keeping deeply sedated uh, anymore. And so this is, there is also agreement, a very high degree of agreement among colleagues. Then we found albumin in hepatorenal syndrome that is beneficial, but this is quite a small uh, setting with uh, relatively few patients benefiting. And then the other very interesting point was that uh, at the time of the consensus, we included mild uh, hypothermia after cardiac arrest. That, is, that was uh, 32 to 34 uh, degrees for the first 24 hours after cardiac arrest. And now there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of debate on this important point with recent trials suggesting that avoiding hyperthermia is uh, is probably enough, and the guidelines keeping with uh, with the importance of mild hypothermia. So this is uh, definitely a hot topic with uh, with very recent findings that are probably already contradicting our uh, consensus. But this is the only. The only part that probably has changed in the last uh, one year since the consensus was performed. And, oh, yes, least but not last, tranexamic acid in trauma patients. There is this extremely big trial published in The Lancet suggesting that this very cheap agent is, uh, is life-saving in, uh, in trauma, in trauma patients. And... This is another point, this is another topic where there is uh, a lot of agreement, but where protocols have not yet been uh, implemented enough. Only a little bit more than 50% of uh, our colleagues are routinely using uh, tranexamic acid in uh, in these patients. And uh, I think here there is uh, much space for improvement since it is a very cheap drug with and if you use it low dose there is uh, no no side effect or at least uh, few side effects a few that we know of i didn't realize how large of a trial that was so that included 20,000 patients yes that was the one that the uk coordinated uh, huge trial yeah 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 and of all the trials i guess that had the greatest um, absolute and relative risk reduction is that so am I reading this correctly when comparing trials? When comparing trials, let's say on average, the effect was uh, big for most of the trials with number needed to treat that is extremely extremely low. Oh, yeah. So it, it range uh, from... Four, five to six, seven in most of the trials. Only the trial on tranexamic acid had the number needed to treat of 68. That is okay. That is comparable with what is found in other specialties. But most of the other trials had number needed to treat that were very, very low. There was a trial on protective ventilation with the numbers needed to treat of four. And uh, most trials on non-invasive ventilation with number needed to treat around uh, five or six. And so let's say that they are overall uh, miracle uh, drug techniques or strategies. 
probably a little bit more than uh, that what happens in real life. I mean, most of these topics, you, you cannot perform a study that is uh, blind, uh, that, uh, that is double blind, at least that is double blind. And so part of this effect is probably due to bias. So I'm not saying that these are not good. I mean, these are all fantastic drug techniques and uh, strategies that are saving lives daily in our uh, ICUs, but the effect is too big. And to treat uh, five, six, or seven patients to save one life is uh, definitely a big, big number. I don't think we find it in other specialties. It's unusual to see. That's great. Certainly supports their use quite effectively. So it looks like the only the only trials, and as, as one would would expect, the only trials that were truly blinded were were the drug trials, the use of albumin and the use of tranexamic acid. Yeah. The rest, rest were, of course, uh, unable to be blinded as they are. They're quite difficult to hide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. For those. Uh, Topics that had reducing mortality, tranexamic acid was the only one that was probably double blinded. Yeah. And again, for the listeners, I'll, I'll uh, list the treatments that have been demonstrated to improve survival. So that again would be albumin and hepatic renal syndrome, daily interruption of sedatives, uh, mild hypothermia and cardiac arrest, non-invasive ventilation in the uh, areas that we spoke about already prone positioning for severe ARDS, protective ventilation in, in ARDS, and tranexamic acid in uh, uh, hemorrhagic traumatic injuries. Uh, yeah. Perhaps we can move on to the ones that we perhaps should, should avoid, or perhaps quite definitely should avoid. Uh, so you identified interventions that were demonstrated to increase uh, mortality. Yeah. What did you find interesting there? So, first of all, the number. So, we identified eight drugs, techniques, or strategies with a significant increase in mortality. I mean, this uh, this was impressive because uh, most, if not all, of these topics were investigated because the investigators thought that they were life-saving. So, let's say that there is... Uh, 50% of chance that when you perform a high-quality trial, you find either an improvement, a reduction in mortality, or an increase in, uh, in mortality. And this was very, this was very impressive. And uh, what was also interesting is that there is only one trial supporting each one of these topics uh, because... Uh, investigators do not want to repeat uh, mistakes. And so once there is a nice big trial suggesting a mortality increase, nobody is uh, studying that uh, that topic anymore. And then what was interesting is these trials uh, were bigger, with more patients uh, randomized, more centers involved, and probably even uh, better blinded. So it's caring. I think this uh, this table with eight topics that are increasing uh, that are increasing mortality in the critical patients is a really scaring one. So interesting. So that actually the the larger, perhaps one might say, better designed trials uh, were the ones that actually showed increases in mortality. Yeah, yeah. This is what we found. Yeah, uh, better design. 
in the trials that found, uh, and I mean, also more patients included uh, to find the effect. So that the, even the number needed to harm was was uh, was higher. Let's say that yeah, these trials were better performed, and uh, some some of these trials we know them uh, very well because they are uh, recent, and there was a lot a lot of uh, debate, like. Hydroxyethyl starch in uh, in severe uh, sepsis patient. I think everybody has been discussing uh, this trial and this topic in the last two years, and even brought uh, to remove the product from uh, from the market at least for a while. And uh, other topics are uh, are simply less well known, like growth uh, hormone that was. Uh, Tested as a kind of uh, good uh, doping uh, in the in the ICU and was found to to increase the mortality in patients with a prolonged intensive care unit stay. And I think from this trial we can get also some lessons for similar drugs. I mean, it's my personal opinion that most drugs uh, that are given as uh, doping in the ICU. They have nice uh, short-term effects, but they probably are associated to an increased mortality like like it was documented for the growth hormone. Yeah, there's certainly some older trials in this, in this group. Um, the growth hormone trial, supernormal oxygen delivery. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. The uh, replacement hemoglobin studies. Yeah, so it looks as though... Uh, Let's see, growth hormone, supernormal elevation of uh, systemic oxygen delivery that we talked about, diaspirin, cross-linked hemoglobin uh, in traumatic patients. IV salbutamol, was that, what was the intervention there? That was, what group of patients? Yeah, these were uh, ARDS patients. Salbutamol is known to is known to improve uh, oxygenation if you give it through aerosol. And so it was uh, very easy to jump to intravenous uh, administration in uh, severe ARDS patients, but definitely did not work, probably because of the hemodynamic effects of the drug. No, nobody knows, nobody knows. What's interesting with these trials, most of the... I mean, most of the times, these drugs immediately disappear from uh, clinical practice, with some uh, notable exception. But they can be useful just to teach us that if there is something similar under the physiological point of view, we should at least study it before you routinely using it in uh, mm-hmm. in, in our patients. Some interesting stories, I suppose. The other. Actually, well, two of the studies that uh, increased mortality, tight glycemic control and uh, high-frequency oscillator ventilation, both of which I guess had, had earlier trials that showed some promise, and, and I think in some regards they these activities got into clinical use before these multi-center trials were performed, and then, uh, the, yep. then the story changed. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Probably high-frequency ventilation was used, I mean, routinely only in a few very specialized sure. centers, but the tight glucose control was really was really widespreading. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, this tire was 
definitely very useful for the scientific community. There is still a lot to say about the best way to control uh, glycemia in uh, diabetics and non-diabetics in uh, medical and surgical ICU. This is uh, this will still be an exciting uh, topic for decades, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think after this trial, we will avoid a lot of uh, hypoglycemic effects in worldwide worldwide and then finally uh, a trial that perhaps many people were disappointed to see that it had negative results but the uh, trial of glutamine uh, and antioxidants in the uh, in the ICU really fa yeah. failed to show uh, well didn't not only failed to show an improvement but demonstrated an increase in mortality yeah yeah so I, I was thinking how does this help us inform I guess two questions one how does this better inform clinical trials and their design for the future? And two, how does this inform clinicians as to when to adopt a new practice or a new modality that, is, that, that shows some promise but hasn't really been subjected to a multicenter trial? Yeah, I think there are important messages for a trialist in this manuscript. Definitely, we are going towards performing larger multi-center randomized trial. This is a must. Uh, Single-center trial uh, should be just uh, hypothesis generating, uh, like uh, meta-analysis. And we should do our best to try and uh, mask treatments, if possible. And uh, yeah, but I think all these things are uh, are happening year by year. We are definitely improving under the methodological uh, point of view. And for physicians who are uh, daily working with these patients, the strong suggestion is to participate to such uh, trials with an open mind, because. Uh, we, in, in ICU, we are in a 50-50% situation where probably new things, half of the time, have a, a bad effect on clinically relevant outcomes. So most of the time there is equipoise and is mandatory to study new drugs, techniques, and strategies in a proper way before having them as a standard clinical practice. And what's next? Uh, we should find the opportunity, the money, the time, and the organization to go back uh, and study what we are uh, routinely doing in uh, our ICU and that is not supported by evidence-based medicine. And this is uh, most of the things we are doing in our daily practice. I mean, they're not evidence-based medicine. We do them because... Uh, we, because we read it in books and uh, because the physiology and the general knowledge is, uh, is supporting us. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's definitely possible that uh, several of the things that we are daily doing is, uh, is detrimental. Definitely. I think if we find a way, a cheaper way and a less bureaucratic way to perform uh, large randomized trials, we will have... Uh, a lot of uh, surprises in the next year.
Yeah, I think this is great for me to have and for our fellows. The you know, it's nice to have these these trials all grouped in one place, like you've done, so that we can really match what we're doing in our ICUs and, as you point out, make sure that we are using the best of it rather than some of the unicenter trials that have, like, at times, led to more widespread adoption of practices uh, than they should have. For for instance, uh, as you mentioned, glycemic control. Yep. Yeah, yeah, resistance from the physician is, uh, is a very, is a very important point. When they think something, I mean, that is uh, perfectly right from their point of view. When they feel that something is uh, useful, they don't want to run the risk to to avoid it. Right. Yes, but but I'm sure knowledge is uh, spreading, and I think especially from the U.S. and then from Australia, we have some. Uh, good uh, piece of news of a little bit less bureaucracy and requirements in randomizing. Uh, there is some cluster randomized trial where there is uh, no need to go through an individual patient consent. Uh, and there is some trial with a perfect equipoise uh, where, again, there is no need to go into a individual patient uh, consent. I mean, to randomize uh, 10,000 patients for a very small, uh, let's say small, drug technical strategy, it's almost impossible to go through all the all the requirements of the new drugs uh, with safety issue. And But I think that slowly, slowly things are, uh, are improving worldwide. With the, with the U.S. and Australia leading the the process. Well, thank you. Are there other points that you'd like to get across? Well, I think uh, we we went through the paper. We went into a little bit of philosophy, and no, I'm happy from my side. I'm definitely happy. I can just thank all the 500 plus participants that helped with the survey and with the and with the process. Well, thank you very much. And again, I think this is a great contribution and easy source to look at the current evidence of practices that we should and shouldn't be utilizing in our ICUs and uh, sets the stage for future trials. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for, uh, for inviting. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th to 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register. And for more information, Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM, is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine.
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.